Hey there, this is Jay from Filmstrip dropping in to let you know you're about to hear a classic episode from our archives. Some of these shows were produced before we called the show Filmstrip Podcast, before we used popcorn ratings, uh, had the standard intro song from Frozen Lake 121, or really even knew what we were doing recording and editing the show. However, there's a lot of fun in them, and we hope you enjoy. Just wanted to let you know in case you noticed the differences. Now, on to the show. Continuous Plays Harry Potter series retrospective. We will be reviewing each of the Harry Potter films this fall up until the release of the first part of the series finale, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. These reviews will be spoiler filled, so if you haven't seen the movies, watch them before listening to our podcast. Continuous Play Podcast is not affiliated with Heyday Films, 1492 Pictures, Duncan Henderson Productions, or Warner Brothers Pictures. In any discussion of these films, the characters, music, or parties involved is done so for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. Now, Anna and Jay, raise your wands and let's get to the podcast. Welcome to Filmstrip's Harry Potter Retrospective Series. I'm Jay. I'm Anna. And we're here to talk about the last entry in the series, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, released in July of 2011 on, again, a shared budget of $250 million with the last movie. Already, it's made $291 million in the U.S. and over $900 million worldwide. Anna, it has all finally come to this. Yes, what yes. we've been waiting for. Yes, what we've been waiting for. Seven books and eight movies. So yeah, eight movies. Eight man. really long are. movies. Now this is a this one's the shortest of of them from recent. I mean, this is two hours and ten minutes alleged running time. I'll tell you, I was looking at my watch and the credits started before the two hour mark for me. So I, you know, maybe I think they have like fifteen minutes of credits. I, they may have, they may have. I'm just saying that I think it it runs a tad short of two, but I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. You said last time the first part of this was seventy five percent of that book, so this last movie is really just the last quarter of the story. Mm-hmm. And so they, I mean, they really jam a lot in here before we go any further, big, big, big spoiler warning. Once again, if by some reason you haven't seen this movie yet, you don't want to listen any further because we're going to spoil it all right now. So you've been duly warned. So Anna, go ahead and give us a plot summary. Let's wrap up this story and talk a little bit about Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows part two. All righty. The tagline says it best. It all ends where it began. Hogwarts. After escaping to a safe house, Harry, Ron, and Hermione learn that there is a horcrux in Beatrice Lestrange's vault at Gringotts. They also confirm that Voldemort does indeed have the Elder Wand. Well, what do they do? With the help of a goblin and some polyjuice potion, Hermione disguises herself as Beatrice Lestrange, and they break into her vault and find another horcrux. So once they are discovered, they unleash a dragon and wreak havoc in order to escape. They believe that the that another Horcrux resides at Hogwarts, and the three decide that they must return. Eventually, upon his return, Harry Potter announces his return to Headmaster Snape. Snape flees, and McGonagall takes charge, and the professors all cast spells and charms to protect the castle. Eventually, Harry, Ron, and Hermione eavesdrop on Snape and Lord Voldemort. When Voldemort kills Snape, thinking that the Elder Wand will respond to him better because Snape killed Dumbledore and the wand belonged to Dumbledore. Um, Upon his death, 
Snape makes kind of a confession, and in his dying breath, he motions for Harry to capture his tears and put them in the pensive. By doing that, Harry learns that Snape loved Lily, his mother, unconditionally, and he went to great lengths to protect her from Baltimore before before they were killed. And in an even bigger surprise, he was really kind of starting to grow fond of Harry. And he went to great lengths to protect Harry from Baltimore as well. Harry also realizes that the last Horcrux is him. Not on purpose. This just kind of happened when Baltimore, when the, the curse ro- bounced off Harry back onto Baltimore. When Harry saw all the people who had died for him, he knew what he had to do. And he marched to the Forbidden Forest to meet Voldemort in his fate. In Purgatory, which is the best thing to describe this place, he meets Dumbledore and realizes he has a choice. He could go back and fight, or he could apparently move on in the afterlife. Of course, he chooses to go back and fight, and he fights Voldemort by faking his death and in turn gaining an unlikely ally in Draco's mom. Meanwhile, Ron and Hermione get a basilisk fang from the Chamber of Secrets in order to destroy the remaining Horcruxes. In the end, it is Neville who destroys the last Horcrux, which is Voldemort's pet snake, um, Najimi, I think is how you pronounce that, or Najimi, and the Dark Lord is no more. Then we fast forward to 19 years later. See, Harry and Ginny are married and have two kids. One is named Albus Severus after Dumbledore and Snape. And Ron and Hermione are married with kids as well. And I'm sure Hermione's kids going to be a little know-it-all just like her. <laughs> so anyway, and so that's the end. All is well, and all's well ends well. Well, that is, that is indeed the wrapping, putting on a bow ending that we've kind of been waiting for in this series. Yeah. And we go through... Well, there's really not a lot to go through. I mean, honestly enough, of all of the Harry Potter movies, this one's about as straightforward and as simple as it can be. The biggest reveal is all of the stuff about Snape, you know, which has been sort of slowly leaked out along the way anyway. But, I mean, that's the first thing I want to start with is just really how simple this all is. It's it's about we're finally going to get it on, you know, in the dark forest. And, of course, there's the twist there, you know, that Dumbledore, I mean, not Dumbledore, Voldemort kills Harry, but in that process, he kills the one thing that is keeping him immune at the same time, which I think is is only poetic that that would be what would happen to him. And then we come back and we get our cast of characters who all play a, an integral role in taking, them, taking down the Dark Lord, and that's pretty much it. But it's pretty straightforward for a Harry Potter story. Yes, it is. Like I said, it they go back to Hogwarts and they fight Voldemort. That's that's the short version of the plot. Well, let me ask you this. You said this was about 25% of the book mm-hmm. before. I mean, does it move this fast when it gets to this yes. point in the book, too? Because yes. this one just flew by. I felt like it was on fast forward the whole time. Yes. When you get to that point of the book, you can't put it down. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it seemed like it was just one thing after another, one payoff after another after another, and it was really moving, you know. It and, was. And it that, was. It moved real. It moves really fast. Yeah. So, well, I mean, let's start with let's talk about Snape. I think we spent a lot of time talking about him and how much we really like Alan Rickman's portrayal and that mm-hmm. character. But I mean, this he's really the center of everything that starts this story, and is a big part of of everything that happens and the whole reveal about how he had protected Harry, even though it never looked like he was doing it, he was doing so. And because he was, you know, he was in love with Harry's mm-hmm. mother, all that. How did you feel about all that? That is actually my favorite part of the book. But I was thinking, you know, in the first movie, when the sorting hat wants to put Harry in Slytherin. Yeah. 
Snape is over Slytherin. I wonder if that was kind of a nod to Snape to that they thought Harry might have needed protection. Definitely could have, yeah. I just thought of that. I mean, there's nothing in the books or anything I've ever read to say that, but it was just an analogy I made. But anyway, this is my favorite part of the book. I know, and we all know too, I think you said it's in the fifth movie, it's in the fifth book, where we know that Snape was friends with Harry's mom. Where right. They've established that. But this goes in deeper and there's one thing they did uh, they did leave out of the movie that was in the book. You see where her sister, where apparently they were friends when they were kids. That because you see them like before they even went to Hogwarts. Apparently Snape lived close to them or something, and she was friends with him before they even went to Hogwarts. Or that's the impression I got. Hmm. Interesting. That I mean, you may not have, and this might be my impression I'm getting from the reading the book and I'm just assuming, and maybe they didn't do a good job in the movie, but that they were friends before, well, because... It, they, it was it was really clear that they knew each other for a long time, and that he had a thing for her that yes. wasn't just like a crush. That it he really, really was in love with this woman, but at the same time, he knew she didn't love him, and so he let her go, hated James Potter to mm-hmm. no end for it, but he didn't he didn't seek revenge for it. He just remained loyal to Lily. Mm-hmm. And part of that meant protecting Harry. And I thought that is such a neat twist for that character because for so long, we've always thought of Snape as being this big obstacle in Harry's way. When yeah. all along, what he's doing is trying to teach him for his own good. You well, know, it, I liked the part, if you notice as he's flashing back, like they flash back when they're kids, they flash back when they're in Hogwarts and, you know, she... She, he can see her making googly eyes, as my boss would say, at James and stuff. And he knows that she likes him in a different way. And right. they're kind of in that friend zone. <laughs> but um, I like that when they go to where, you know, Harry's a baby and stuff and he's talking to Dumbledore and he tells Dumbledore, he says, you've got to protect them. I don't care if you have to protect James and Harry, but if that protects Lily, protect them. And it, and he's the and I'm assuming from and I believe this is in the book, but I'm not 100 percent sure. But I am assuming from the movie that he's the one who brings Harry to Dumbledore because uh, yeah. he's in there when Lily died. He sees James's body and he sees Lily's body and he's in the he's in the Harry's nursery, which is where she dies. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a fair assumption. I've never thought much about it, but it would totally make sense. But yeah. I, I'm just really blown away at the fact that that kind of retcons a lot of your impressions of Snape throughout the story. Then now you realize all the things he's done, you interpret them on the surface as being antagonistic, uh-huh. but really what they are is supportive and teaching. They're just the way he does things. Yeah, and also, but you've got to think of it this way too. He's never ever. I mean, he's. Even now, even more now because she's dead, he's never going to be with the one person he truly loves. Right. He wasn't going to be with her because she loved someone else and got married and had Harry. And he wasn't going to, he's not going to be with her now because she's dead. And I mean, that really puts, I mean, I would expect someone where now looking back, I would expect someone who's had that happen to him would be like Snape. 
would have a demeanor like Professor Snape. I could see that. He's kind of bitter and angst-ridden and all that type yeah. of stuff. He's, he's a dark fellow all the way. Yes, he's you know? never going to have what he truly wants. He but never have it. The, the, the interesting thing about that is that he's allowed himself to be set up as the bad guy for the greater good here. You know, we learn in this that him killing Dumbledore was a setup between the two of them. Yes, you but we, you've, and that's the other thing we got to understand. We're seeing, until this point, we're seeing everything through Harry's eyes. Right. And Ron and Hermione, so to speak. We're seeing everything through their eyes. This is the first time we've seen it through Snape's eyes. Correct, correct. And that's what makes it such an interesting turn. Mm-hmm. You know, and it does... You know, you feel like, ah, oh, you know, now I really want to hate Snape, you know, because he killed Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. But you realize there's more to it. Yeah. Than, than that, and now you know why. And that it, it again, he is, he's a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. You know, he sacrifices himself for the greater good. And just like you know, I said Dobby dies and he's really dead, and Dumbledore dies and he's really dead. Snape dies and he's really dead. Yeah. Yeah, it's very dark. It's but it's such a neat neat turn and then the whole bit with the tears and uh, Harry being able to see all of this and learn this it gives him a new respect for all of it you know yeah because Harry is having to deal with these things and learn these things about his family about himself and all this while he is in the fight for his life and that's that's what makes this so so um tense I mean this movie is so intense because all of that is weighing down and I think you feel every single bit of that Mm mm-hmm I totally, I agree. A hundred, I agree. A hundred percent. That's amazing. And you know, look, Snape's not the only one that dies here, right? Fred dies. Fred Weasley yep. dies and Remus Lupin dies. And, uh-huh. I, you and know. Tonks dies. <clears throat> yeah. And Ron's crazy ex-girlfriend Lavender dies. So, yes. I mean, there's, there's a lot of death in this. Yeah. And there, I mean, it's like you said, the, we thought the part one was dark. This is even darker. Oh, totally darker. It is. But I love the fact that they had to go back to the school. You know, mm-hmm. we got to go back to school and face well, the demon at school. Well, when she wrote this, J.K. Rowling said that, um, uh, she said that, you know, everybody knew after reading the sixth book that they weren't going back to school. I mean, you know, it's the same as the end. They make a pact that they're going to go look for these horcruxes. And she's like, well, of course we're going to go back to school. There's going to be a new death, uh, um, not death against the dark arts, but, you know, defense against the dark arts teacher and stuff. And so, I mean, it's, it's true. It is. But they're just not there, you know. Right. So anyway, she made that comment. She's like, there has to be a new defense against the dark arts teacher. Every, every year we got to have a new yeah. one. And that's, well, you know, and I, I want to talk. It took about, us a long time getting there this year. But yeah, it did. It did. But but again, that's not the story anymore. The story's not what's happening at school anymore. We're beyond mm-hmm. that. It just happens to, it's all going to go down at the school because why not? I mean, you know, where, where well, like, else could this happen? Like the tagline says, it ends where it all started. Exactly. Yeah. It ends where it begins. So that that makes the most sense of, of all of it. What about Neville? You know, little old dumpy Neville has come know, a long way. I know. And he is not written like that in the book. He's not written. I mean, I know it's the actor and we've said this, especially in the third fourth and maybe even fifth movie that you know they're they started out 11 and now they're like eight i mean not really because it took more than a year to do the movies they're really like 20 but you know that's not that far from 17 18 but they started out at 11 and now we're at like 17 18 19 20 21 whatever and um and the kids 
grew with the movies. We've made comments that um, Tom Felton, who plays Draco Malfoy, looks different, like especially like from the second to the third to the fourth. Yeah, yeah. He looks different in every movie because he's growing. And um, I don't. Neville is not. I, I'm. I'm. It, it's just really interesting how they portrayed Neville because yeah. I've never thought of him as that. He looks really athletic in the movie, and I never thought of him that way, even reading this book. Right, but we learned something about him along the way too. Right, that he is not all he has been cracked up to be. No, along the way. No, and like we were talking before we started the podcast in the first movie. His grandmother sent him this thing, and it's supposed to, it's like a little ball, and it'll turn red when you forget something. But he's like, I don't remember what I forgot. In the books, he's always been this real kind of, um, you know, forgetful, kind of, just kind of like, la, la, la kind of person, you know, just kind of there. Yeah. He's forgetful. He did in one of the second or third one, he really got into the horticulture I think it was the fourth one, maybe. He really got into, like, the herbology or whatever. Right, because he comes up with the jillyweed and all that stuff. And... Yeah, he really got into that and I, and um, stuff. So I think he's really smart. So, you know, like you said, I never would have thought of him to be badass or something. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the last person you expect to, to take up arms and do anything at the end. But, indeed, that's that's exactly what he does. And we'll get to that in a minute. I, I want to talk about the action just as a whole in this movie. There's been a lot of action in these movies. But the last two in particular, and, and really this one, is really a big action movie. I mean, you, you talked about it in the plot summary about how they unleash the dragon to basically break out of the bank. Mm-hmm. What better way to break out of a bank than to unleash and a dragon? And they wind up basically killing everybody. In yeah, the I mean, they fry the whole place, uh, which I thought was pretty intense. And But it looked great. I mean, the effects looked incredible. That's all computer generated, and it looked amazing. One thing you can say, one thing I have to say about this whole franchise is it is like a history of computer generation. I really think, is. you know, it's like, I mean, looking at the first movie and now looking at this and I mean, even the middle ones, like looking at them from our perspective now, they look bad, but they look so much better than like the first two. You know, they oh, look yeah. like Goblet of Fire, despite how boring we think it is, the effects look way better than the the chamber of secrets or or and like the effects in this one and the the part one look way better i know and they do they really goblet of fire so if you can't say anything else about this franchise it is a wonderful history or a progression of computer computer effects no they i mean they've done an incredible job with these now anna you saw this in 3d is that correct Yes. Okay, well, go ahead, because I saw it in 2D, and I thought it looked great there. I don't know what it would have been like in 3D. Okay. I I have a caveat to that, is that I was on vacation, and apparently on Hilton Head Island, they hadn't built a new theater in the last 20 years. And so the only way to get a digital screen, which was really cheap, I will say that, but the only way to get a digital screen was to do 3D. You don't know what you were wow. getting to do 3D. Hmm. So, and I could hear the people in the movie, I think Captain America was playing next to us, and I could hear them talking while I'm watching this. So, it was not the greatest movie experience in the world, and I'm sorry, they just need to build a new theater. They need to get their little building codes and build a new theater. 
because it rained and everybody was flocking out there. But anyway, how did the 3D look though? I mean, it's post. It looks great now. And my husband loved it. I don't really think. Usually, he's like me, and I don't think 3D really does anything to. It does not enhance anything for me. Yeah. I've. I. I mean, I saw pirates in 3D just because of the time frame. And I'm like, okay, I don't see what's the big deal about it. And a lot of the Pixar in 3D that I see with my kids, I don't really, I really don't, I don't really think I'm even watching 3D. And that's what I felt with this. But the screen was really good. It was really crisp. I have to say that. And, but my husband disagreed with me. He thinks this one, you had to see it in 3D. I, I would, I would disagree with that because I saw it in 2D and I thought it looked amazing. I could imagine what it looked like in 3D, that that might be cool. Uh-huh. But more people are going to watch this on the back end. They're going to buy the DVD, the Blu-ray. Yeah. You know, they're going to see it more and more that way. You, I mean, it's going to be hard to recreate that 3D experience at home. It really is anyway. Those televisions are known to really hurt your eyes. That came out last week, even so. I think the craze of that is dying down a little bit. I don't know that you needed 3D for this, you know. I I know why they did it. I know why they did it. But, I, again, I saw it in 2D. It, yeah, I saw it in 2D and it looked fine. The only scene, and it almost scared me to death, um, was the dragon scene where I could tell the 3D. The one in the bank when yeah. the, the neck's coming out and the fire's breathing. That scene in particular might have been the one thing you'd want in 3D. But the rest of it, I don't know, was that interesting or as important. I didn't, so, I didn't see, my husband did, I didn't see a need for it. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it is what it is. So, I, w- I want to talk about the snake now, and the genie, the, mm-hmm. the pet snake, that was a freaky looking snake, all right? Yeah, it was. But I want to tell you, you talked about your theater experience. Okay, I've only heard a crowd pop in, a, in an audience, in a movie audience, a few times in my life, like it did when Neville pulled that sword out and chopped the head off that snake. You'd have thought Cam Newton dove over the goal line for the winning score in the BCS championship game. It was the Harry Potter fanboy championship in that theater. I mean, you couldn't hear anything in the music and the effects and all that's pumping around it. When he chops that snake's head off, people exploded. And I thought that was such a neat moment because it is only a few times in my life that I've been in a theater where people just reacted like that to something. And I, it was a pretty amazing thing because, I mean, you're sure that's about to chomp down on Ron and Hermione and then all of a sudden, boom, it's gone. Yeah, I've, I, I didn't have that experience. Granted, there were only like 10 people in the theater. <laughs> I'm telling you, this was not a real it's not real, a beach movie at all. I, I agree. So. Uh, this was not a real um, experience, but we had someone watching the kids, so we took advantage of it. But I didn't have anybody jumping up and down. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, I, I think maybe at the end everybody clapped. And, I mean, yeah. and it got pretty loud for 10 people. Yeah, so. I mean, it, it was a it was a big moment, though, because that's when you realize that's now turned everything back on Voldemort. And I guess we should back up a minute and talk about when Voldemort, quote, kills Harry for a second. You know, you alluded to that uh, uh, several podcasts back that one of these people is going to have to die for uh-huh. the story to conclude. And I honestly never thought I didn't see this coming. And then they do this. I thought these two were going to duel, 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 and eventually Harry will just get the best of him because good always triumphs evil. I didn't think the the you know evil would have to kill the good guy, which indeed killed 
one thing that was protecting him. And, um, you know, I guess he didn't realize that or whatever, but I didn't, I didn't think he'd have to kill Harry to do that. And I was sort of amazed by that. I was taken aback by it. I guess everybody that's read the book, that's no big deal or it's not a surprise, but for me it was. Well, that's the rumor as she, as, like I said before, when she was between the sixth book and the seventh book, when she was writing the seventh book and the last book, um, and she did, she said, of course, there's going to be a new defense against the dark arts teacher. The whole question on that book and why all the fanboys or the fans like me, quote unquote, read it and bought it was because will Harry die or will Harry live? Will Harry die or will Harry live? That is the whole point of that. That was the whole rumor for that book was, is he going to die? Is he going to live? Is he going to die? Is he going to live? So, um, I, you know, Reading the book, you're reading it to find out if he dies or if he lives. Right. And right. I mean, if you're a fan and you keep up. Now, what what did you think of the whole bit where Dumbledore meets him in purgatory or heaven or whatever you you want to call it, and mm-hmm. basically reveals to him, you know, well. Uh, Voldemort's made a bad mistake and now it's up to you to choose. I thought the whole choice thing was a little weak because I thought, yeah, sure. He's going to choose to move on after all of this. That was a little weak. It should have just, for me, my money, he could have just said, Harry, you now got him where you want him because the idiots just killed the last thing that was protecting him. And that was in you. So get back down there and finish him, you know, which of course it wasn't. The snake was the last one, but you know, they, they figured that out pretty quick. But I thought I would have rather gone that way than the whole you now have a choice. I thought that was a little thin. No, because that's almost exactly how it plays out in the book. Uh, yeah, I'm that's sure. almost exactly how it plays out. Oh, and I mean, to me, I just kind of think of it as one last meeting with his mentor. I mean, he's there and he thinks, he, you know, I mean, imagine if Dumbledore wasn't there. He's in what he says looks like King's Cross with this like weird looking baby with massive hands, um, you know, under, you know, like family guys, prom night dumpster baby thing is sitting there and um, under this bench. And, um, you know, what if Dumbledore wasn't there? You know, I'm thinking if I were Harry, I'd be like, oh, I guess I'm in heaven. And I guess that's that's. Baltimore slash Horcrux. So I think this is like one last conversation with his mentor. And Dumbledore is never told to me, he's never been the type of teacher or mentor that's like, okay, Harry, you got to get out and do that. He's always through the ages let Harry choose for himself. That's a good point. And I hadn't thought of it that way. And that, that actually makes a lot more sense character wise. I was just saying for me, my money, I didn't need the whole choice conundrum because it was pretty clear what was going to happen but never mind they do get back to it pretty quick and Mm -hmm. you know everybody's getting lectured by Voldemort and Neville stands up and that's when Harry rises and they get into the big duel and then like we said Neville takes the sword out and takes out the pet snake which is Voldemort's last defense and Voldemort basically turns into ash and just blows away that was a really cool effect I was wondering how they were going to kill him if, if mm-hmm. indeed Harry killed him, what would happen? Would he zap? Would he boom? You know, what? And he just burned up into nothing. He dies, and I mean, it's it's a pretty amazing shot. So, now, I got to ask a question here about what happens after that. 
Oh, All right. The, yeah. the first two things. Well, well, Harry, Harry's got the elder wand back mm-hmm. now because it was his to begin with because he's mm-hmm. the one that disarmed Malfoy mm-hmm. uh, for it. And he breaks it in two and throws it over the ledge. So he sort of mm-hmm. is that sort of like I'm sort of denying the fact that I'm supposed to be this big deal in the magic world and I'm going to go be a normal person. Or what is that symbolic of? Uh, I would think it's symbolic of he doesn't want it to get in the wrong hand. I mean, Dumbledore had it for years, and it, when he died, and it got in the wrong hands. I think he doesn't want that responsibility. Makes you know? sense. I think that's my interpretation of it. He, you know, he's had all this responsibility. He's the chosen one. He's been that way his whole life for at this point, seventeen, eighteen years. Right. You know, he doesn't want the responsibility of having that too, and I don't think he wants it to fall into the wrong hands and there be another Voldemort. So I think he just, you know, it's bet it's better for everybody if I just if I just destroy it and chunk it somewhere. Oh, I looked at it as a, this was a part of our history for so long that I'm ending this now. And where we go from here is where we, the magic people decide we go. And that not, makes sense. That makes sense too. Yeah. We're not going to be held on to this old thing that we've all feared and has just haunted us. For I don't all the think years. they feared the elder one per se. Well, the, the power of it though, is what I mean. Like if it fell yeah. in the wrong hands, that whole idea, I think he wanted them to forge forward and we're moving on beyond this moment, which for me was also the, the stamp of no Voldemort's really gone that this yeah. is really it. And that, that was big for me. So now I got one thing though, about the end and I got it, the very end, the 19 years later yeah, flash forward. Okay. I have a feeling what you're going to say. It's going to be the same thing. I'm going to say. Okay. Probably. I want to know this. I understand the poignant moment of watching these people with some age makeup, watch their children, <laughs> watching their children go off on the Hogwarts express. My question is, what are these people doing? Now, why aren't they working at Hogwarts? Yeah, what's the story? Because I would think if anybody you wanted to be a part of the future faculty, it'd be those three. Um, they're not. Harry is um like Mad Eye and Aura or something. It's I okay. always want to say auditor, but it's like it's because I'm an accountant. It's an Aura. It's the people that chased after um, and they don't really go into it in the movies, but in the book, especially in the fifth book with Umbridge. Um, McGonagall argues with her over, yes, he can be one. And she's like, oh, no, he can. His grades aren't high enough. And she's like, oh, yes, he can. It's like, it's kind of like, I don't know, like the FBI or CIA or something for okay. the magical people. Magical intelligence? Yeah, something like that is that they would go and um, capture, and I don't know why they would need one right now since there's no Voldemort. That's, but yeah. they would go and catch wizards that were going bad and probably put them in Azkaban or something. And that's what Mad Eye did before he came to Hogwarts. Um, um, Neville is actually, if I remember correctly, and I'm almost, I'm, I'm pretty darn sure. Neville is at Hogwarts. Uh, they mentioned that in the book. Neville is a professor or headmaster at Hogwarts at 19 years later. And um, I don't remember what Ron and Hermione do I don't remember either. I don't remember. They didn't say, but Harry is an. Uh, it's I can't pronounce it right, but it's or 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 something. It's a u r o r. That's how you spell it. And um, they just track down bad wizards and kind of like intelligence or CIA or something to us. So what do Ron and Hermione do? I, because I'm I'm kind of lost I, on this. 
I don't remember, and I honestly don't think they said. Maybe. Yeah, well, they don't. I mean, there's nothing in there that tells I you. I, I'm asking why those people aren't working at Hogwarts. Like, to me, that'd make the most sense. I don't know. Like I said, the only one that I believe in the book they mention is at Hogwarts is Neville. I believe that's the only one they mention in the book that's at Hogwarts. Because, I mean, think about it. If Hermione was at Hogwarts, why would she be putting her kids on the Hogwarts Express? Well, uh, well I, I'll tell you. I'll tell you now that bugged me because I thought that's a little too mundane. Like these. I don't know. I guess that's the point is that these people have lived such extraordinarily extraordinary young lives that they uh-huh. would want the most boring adult life that they could dream up. You know, so I don't, I don't know. It just, that to me though, left me feeling a little flat after all of it. It's a little anticlimactic at the end. That's not what I was, I was going to say about that. (laughs) The thing is that, and I mean, I've talked, I don't know if I've talked about it in the podcast, but you and I have talked about it offline, so to speak. And bless his heart, Daniel Radcliffe's really short, like shorter than Tom Cruise short, like really short for for his age and stuff. So, and there's not nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. Tom Cruise is very successful and stuff. But anyway, um, but, and they're so young, you know, they're like 20 now and putting them, looking at them and seeing them with kids, you know, these kids are going to Hogwarts for these first time. So I know they've got makeup on and they're trying to make them look older, but you know, you know, they're 20 year old kids. And they've got these kids that are like 11. And I'm just like, that just drives me nuts. I was like, maybe get another actor. Well, okay. I can answer that for you. I can answer that for you, though. I'm with you. I'm like, why not recast that? But there's a good reason. You can't recast that. After all of this, you've got to let those people play their adult selves. I know, but to me, and maybe it's the makeup, maybe maybe the makeup people didn't do as good a job. Yes, and that's the whole point is I saw them like plain dress up. I saw them as like little, like my girls are three and five, saw them as little kids, three and five plain dress up. Well, it it comes off that way. But again, this is, I mean, it's like 45 seconds at the end. I mean, it's pretty quick. So could they have not used some computer generation and got like (laughs) actors and maybe transposed their faces or something? I don't think they had that kind of dough. And having seen movies where they've tried that with people, it always looks horrible. They look like Muppets and there's no way to make that, that that would look horrible. So, Or, or something like maybe use the computer to make their face look older. They could have, but I mean, apparently they did. I think that's what, it doesn't look like they use physical effect. Like for me, they should have gone with practical makeup on that. But I mean, we're splitting hairs here over the, I know that was the, that was my worst part of the movie. Cause besides the Snape thing in the book, that's the second part I loved. It's like figuring out what all of them did. And like, I didn't even think about, you don't know what they're doing. Right. Which would make more sense if we knew what they were doing and what they're wearing. Well, it would. It would. But that's not where they leave us. But they don't leave any room for anything else. This is it, right? I mean, there's no there's no addendum story coming. Yes, and the know. last line of the book is something like, um, and I'm paraphrasing, is he nods over to Malfoy, you know, because you see Malfoy. Malfoy, right. too. He nods over to Malfoy, and Malfoy nods to him. And then he says something like his scar hadn't hurt. He reaches up and fills its scar and he says it something like it hadn't hurt for 19 years and it'll never hurt again. Right. In other words, Voldemort is gone. That's yeah. that, the thing that hurt was the, the Horcrux. 
Uh-huh. You know, yes. Was fighting against him, and now we know that. So, well, Anna, we're at the part of the podcast where we give a popcorn rating for the movie. So, what's your popcorn rating for Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part Two? I would give this an extra large popcorn with extra large butter, and I'm a big fan. And I think this was a wonderful payoff. I think it was. I was. This is what I was hoping. Very rarely, what I'm expecting happens, and this is what I was hoping for. I think it was true to the story, true to the book and i just i mean for lack of a better word and you gotta understand i'm a fan so i'm probably biased i think it was epic i wasn't disappointed it was a great end everything's tied up we learn so much it's all good it's all good it's all done we even figure out what they're doing 20 years down the road um even if it irks us a little bit so you know that like you said that's 45 seconds i can live with that extra large popcorn extra butter well, I think it's extra large popcorn because it is a good ending. You know, the thing about series of films, when they ever get to the end, it's rarely ever satisfying. It, it, there always seems to be something that leaves you hanging, you know. And I'll tell you, my biggest fear about this was that I was going to be Return of the Jedi in this. That I, I was going <laughs> to feel like I just, there was something there that was somewhat fulfilling, but also was eh, not so great. And I didn't feel that way at all about it. I think it was a great payoff. It was a lot of fun. It was. It's fast. It's a fast ride. It's a short film really compared to the other ones and it I, I like the way it ends i think it's cool i mean i have a little quips here and there and we've talked about those but for the most part i had a good time with this one and i recommend it too this is extra large popcorn as well and i've got to ask you this now that we're at the end of this podcast series and we did eight films here real mm-hmm. quick like rank them for me like you don't necessarily have to rank them but like what was your favorite one and then what's your least favorite one Adam? oh i'll rank them I can rank them from eight to, I would say, if I'd go eight, I would probably say Goblet of Fire. Then seven, I would say, would probably be um, Chamber of Secrets. And and then six, I'm actually going to go with um, the first one, the Sorcerer's Stone, because while it's got a lot of good information, you have to see it. I don't know if it necessarily holds up the test of time. It's one of those you got to see if you're going to start the movie. Um, so what am I at? Five. Five, I go with Order of the Phoenix because I don't think there's a lot of, it's not a bad movie, but I don't think there's a lot of action in it. And um, so I go with four. Four, I go with um, probably Deathly Hallows Part One. Three, I'd probably go with um, Prisoner of Azkaban. Two, probably... And one and two kind of be a tie. I think I would do between Half-Blood Prince and this one, Deathly Hallows Part 2. Okay, very interesting. I'll, I've said from the outset that the third one is my favorite, and it still remains my favorite of the whole series. I just, it's it's the only one that I actually own, mm-hmm. and it probably would be the only one that I have. Um, because I just like that movie. I can go back to it often. That's not to say there's not some good ones in there. I would put part two right up there with it. And I like part one, even though it doesn't necessarily hold up effects wise. The Mm -hmm. story is so good. That one holds up. And then the rest of them kind of fall in between there. I'm with you. Goblet of Fire is my least favorite. I think I made that clear on that podcast. The rest of them, you can kind of order in a multiple different ways for me, but you know, I've always liked the third one, but I did think this was a really satisfying end too. So it would be right up there with me. So really the third one, this one, and the first one are kind of the, the top ones for me. And then everything else, 
floods its way out till you get to the Goblet of Fire. So, well, folks, we really appreciate you joining us on this retrospective series. It's been the longest one we've ever done, not only the longest in number of films, but the longest that uh, it's taken us to release all of them. So we've had a good time with this, and we hope you have, too. Keep checking back to our website, continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies, for more updates and future films that we're going to review. Until next time, for Anna, I'm Jay. Thanks for tuning into Filmstrip on Continuous Play. Thank you for joining us in this chapter of Continuous Play's Harry Potter series retrospective. We will be reviewing each of the Harry Potter films this fall up until the release of the first part of the series finale, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Check out our website, www.continuousplaypodcast.com, each week for a new release in the series, and email feedback to us at mailbag at continuousplaypodcast.com. 